This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. On the morning of June 13th, 1977, A camp counselor was walking to the showers area at a Girl Scout camp in Mays County, Oklahoma, when she stumbled upon the body of one of the campers. It was soon discovered that all three girls who had been sharing tent number eight had been viciously murdered and left on the trail. A suspect was eventually tried for the murders and was acquitted of all charges. But new DNA evidence suggests that he may have been guilty all along. This is the story of Lori Lee Farmer, Doris Denise Milner, and Michelle Heather Gousset, also known as the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. I want to start today's episode a little differently by discussing a certain topic that came up for me recently while on Instagram. Someone posed the question of ethical true crime on a post and what that means to you. And another post spoke about victims' families trying to pay for lawyers while others were making money off their loved ones' stories. And I know this is a hotly debated topic in the true crime community, but I wanted to touch base on it quickly from my perspective. And I know everyone and their dog has a true crime podcast right now out there, or there's a Netflix documentary or a movie or a TV show based on true crime events. And these people make money talking about true crime, talking about victims' stories and their murders. And I'm not immune to that. And while I don't make much of anything at this point, I could. I could make money as my podcast grows, potentially. And this poses the question if it's okay to benefit from someone else's story. Personally, I don't know what the right answer is. I honestly didn't think about it much before this came up, and maybe that's ignorant or naive, but it didn't really occur to me in that way. But what I can do is take this opportunity to tell you about my podcast and why I started it, and what instinctively felt right to me and maybe you find that ethical or not but that's what I thought I would speak to. Abuse is something that I've dealt with in various forms and I've touched on that in past episodes and again maybe one day I'll share my story but it is difficult to open up fully and share those things so I tell other stories stories I can relate to that maybe can help someone else in the future, help spread the word so that a victim's family can get justice. And I share stories specific to women and girls 
because I gravitated to those stories and wanted to speak up about violence against women and children. I also felt so badly that the victims are often barely discussed and struggled to find a podcast like mine, so I created it. I speak as much as I can about the victims in my stories, what happened to them, and how that relates to the demographic, country, or city as a whole by sharing statistics. I strive to be inclusive, attempting to tell stories from as many different women as possible, from different locations, ethnicities, and backgrounds. I avoid talking about the killer as much as possible unless it is important in some way. A few episodes did discuss the killer more because I thought my episodes should be longer, but I stopped that as it just felt wrong. I rather a shorter episode than a longer one that discusses the killer more than the victim, because often there is much more information about the killer available. I also choose a monthly charity to donate a portion of my revenue to. And again, I while I haven't really had any monies to donate as of yet, I will when the time comes, and that's a guarantee. Because again, it just feels like the right thing to do. These are just my choices, and they might not be your opinion or your choice, and that is fine. I'm not here to be the ethics police, because I'm sure many people will still have criticisms for my podcast regardless. But I wanted to express why my podcast is structured the way it is, and why I do what I do, whether it's right or wrong in your eyes, but I'd be happy to hear your thoughts on this topic, so feel free to message or comment on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast or my Facebook discussion group. It's been 45 years since this tragic and heart-wrenching crime occurred. Most recently, on May 24th, a docuseries of four episodes titled Keeper of the Ashes was released on Hulu, which delves deeply into the crime. Hosted by Kristen Chenoweth, who was actually supposed to be at the camp as well, but was ill and stayed home, which is so crazy to think about, not just because she's a celebrity, but any time fate intervenes in scenarios like that, it just literally gives me chills. One article says she was actually meant to stay in the same tent also, which is even more terrifying to think of. But unfortunately, I can't seem to watch the docuseries in Canada yet, so I'm not sure if that part is accurate or sensationalized for the article I read, but I'd really like to watch it and learn more. I actually chose this case to cover at the beginning of this year, as I plan out most of my upcoming episodes well in advance, and added it to my list, but it wasn't until I began researching this case last week that I realized the series had been made. And it's interesting, actually, as it's happened a few times now where I find a recent development in a case or some renewed interest just occurred prior to when I started researching it for my podcast episode. Lori Lee Farmer was born on June 18, 1968, in Little Rock, Arkansas. At just eight years old at the time of her murder, She was the oldest of five children. Her mother, Sherry, saying she adored her siblings and loved being a big sister, as she was very kind and loving in nature. 
her mother stating, quote, Lori loved when a new baby arrived. She was the quintessential oldest child, and she took care of everyone, end quote. Lori was also very smart, according to her father, Dr. Charles Farmer, who went by the nickname Bo. He stated during trial that Lori, quote, was an exceptional child. She was extremely bright. One day, to give you an example, we were sitting at the breakfast table. Lori was 16 months old, and just all of a sudden, she recited the Pledge of Allegiance flawlessly, end quote. He also stated that Lori finished a 100-piece jigsaw puzzle at the age of two and skipped grade two due to high test scores, which just reinforces how naturally gifted she was intellectually. Lori's parents were quite private prior to the series, but stated that they decided to participate because, quote, we're getting older for one thing, and the reality is somebody is going to do a documentary, whether we are involved or not. So we decided we might as well entertain doing it with whoever we think will do the best job and represent us, and where we have at least some input, end quote. But because of this privacy, I found it difficult to find much more about Lori and her upbringing during her short life. But at some point, the family moved to Oklahoma, and this two-week-long Girl Scout camping trip was Lori's first time attending. Doris Denise Milner was born on February 5, 1967, to parents Betty and Walter Milner and was just 10 years old at the time of her death. She had one sister, according to her obituary, but in an article about the case, it says that she had two sisters. So I assume the second sister was born following Doris's death. Doris was also an extremely smart child, attending a school for gifted children. Her mother remembering, quote, anytime she had a question about anything, she would go to the library and look it up, end quote. Her mother had stated she worked hard to sell her Girl Scout cookies in order to go on the trip, but that her friends had backed out at the last minute and that she was nervous at first, but ultimately decided to go alone and hoped to meet new friends. Her mother stating, quote, She was an extremely friendly little girl, and she loved people. Anywhere we went, she always made friends, end quote. It's clear Doris and Lori would have been fast friends, as the two girls were quite similar. Doris also loved her younger sibling and doted over her, even making her breakfast in the morning. Her mother stating, quote, It seemed that she was the mother sometimes, end quote. Doris was interested in many activities in addition to Girl Scouts. She loved tap dancing, skating, and gymnastics, and was diligent in practicing her skills. Her mother stating, quote, she was a child that wanted to do so much. She just tried to do everything she could do, end quote. In 1985, both the Milners and the Farmers sued the organizers of the camp for negligence, and the case went to trial. In the end, the organizers were found not guilty by a jury. Many of the previous quotes I've stated are from this trial, as it gave the families a chance to share some of their stories about Lori and Doris. Michelle Heather Gousset was born on July 22, 1967, in Miami, Oklahoma, to parents Georgianne and Richard, and she had one brother. 
Michelle was just nine years old at the time of her death and had been to the camp the year before. She was very active and athletic and just loved the outdoors, so she was very excited to return to the camp. Her mother remembering, quote, She was very excited, and she came downstairs, and she sat on my lap and told me that she was going to miss me, but she wanted to make sure that I was going to take care of her plants. African violets were her specialty, and she wanted to make sure I was going to water them and take care of them, end quote. Her father also stated it felt as though somehow Michelle knew she wasn't going to return home from this trip, saying, quote, It was like a premonition. She hugged us goodbye. It was like she was saying goodbye and that she was never going to see us again. End quote. As I touched on, the Gousset family opted not to partake in the lawsuit. And while they didn't participate, they were very vocal about the case and in support of the other families. A major point of contention was that the families were not immediately told how their daughters died, only that an accident had occurred and that they were deceased, which, understandably, would be distressing as a parent, and they deserved to be told the truth immediately, because there was no misunderstanding about what had occurred upon discovering their remains on the morning of June 13, 1977. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. Femicide just recently surpassed 10,000 downloads, and I cannot thank you enough for your support. If you haven't already, please leave a review. It helps so much in getting my podcast out to a wider audience. The concept behind Femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a woman-run operation. I write, record, and edit every single episode myself. As I mentioned, I have recently brought on someone to help with research on some upcoming episodes to help me out and to help continue to share these important stories. But as in today's case, I do also research most episodes myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app, and I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of June 2022 is the Canadian Women's Foundation. Quote, The Canadian Women's Foundation is a national leader in the movement for gender equality in Canada. Through funding, research, advocacy, and knowledge sharing, we work to achieve systemic change. End quote. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families because word of mouth is the best review of all. This part is difficult to listen to and I won't go into much detail, but all three girls had been sexually assaulted and beaten. Lori and Heather had been bludgeoned to death and Doris had been strangled. Their bodies were left along the trail in their sleeping bags and a camp counselor found them the following morning. They'd been at camp for just one day. Their camp was located at the farthest point away from the counselors, 
And while some people reported hearing noises that night, there was also a storm. And even though one counselor did briefly check as she heard the noises, she thought they were just animals and didn't go any further. There are reports of a note found. Now, some articles refer to it being left at the scene or found earlier in the day, while others state it happened weeks before that day and that a tent was ransacked. But the note says, quote, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one, end quote. The crime took place in either tent seven or tent eight. Again, this depends on which article you read. I'm pretty sure it is tent eight, though, based on my research. I'm sure the documentary delves deeper into these little details, and again, I do hope to watch it at some point. My only question is that if it was written prior to that day, how would they have known there was just three girls in that tent? Or was that just a coincidence? Because each tent had four girls normally, but their fourth was arriving late, which does correlate to Kristen Chenoweth being absent due to illness. Um, So again, I'm not sure if she was actually meant to be in that tent or if that was another girl. But that was worth noting. It is claimed the note was written off as a prank. The camp was immediately evacuated following the murders and was eventually shut down permanently. The investigation began immediately and the area was thoroughly searched in the state's largest ever conducted search party. The wooded area near Locust Grove, Oklahoma, had been used as an away camp for decades prior to this incident. Locust Grove has a population of just 1,423 as of 2010 and is located in Mays County, just 47 miles or 75 kilometers east of Tulsa, which is the second largest city in the state. But this area where the camp was, while not completely isolated, was sparsely populated. Items were soon found scattered in various areas surrounding the camp, including rope, duct tape, beer bottles, and a pair of women's eyeglasses. A crowbar, which is believed to be the murder weapon, was also found, as were other items indicating someone had been living inside of a nearby cave. The cave was also near a cellar door, found to be the foundation of the childhood home of a man named Jean Leroy Hart. Rumors quickly spread that he was to blame before police had even announced it in the small town. He was an escaped convict who broke out of the county jail in 1973 after being convicted of raping two pregnant women and four counts of burglary. He was eventually arrested and charged with the murders, but in a shocking twist, He was found not guilty due to a lack of evidence and was acquitted on March 31, 1979. Although he still had, quote, 305 years of his 308-year sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, end quote, and was still sent back to prison for the earlier crimes. Then, at just 35 years old on June 4, 1979, He collapsed and died of a heart attack while in prison, taking the truth of his crimes with him. Since then, DNA testing 
has inconclusively linked Jean Leroy Hart to the crime, first in 1989 and then again in 2022. The sheriff stating, quote, Unless something new comes up, something brought to light that we are not aware of, I am convinced where I am sitting of Hart's guilt and involvement in this case, end quote. While it's not a great ending where justice was served, it is at least a hopeful ending that the right person was identified as the murderer and was not able to cause this type of tragedy to any other families, even if not 100% legally proven. Lori's mother, Sherry Farmer, founded the Oklahoma chapter of the support group Parents of Murdered Children, and Michelle's father, Richard, went on to found the Oklahoma Crime Victims Compensation Board in 1981, on which he served for 22 years, as well as working to help pass the Oklahoma Victims' Bill of Rights in the state legislature. I want to finish this episode reading the letters home that each girl wrote their first evening at camp. Lori Lee Farmer wrote, Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, We're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having lots of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now, because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. Doris Denise Milner wrote, Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. And Michelle Heather Gousset wrote, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Thank you for listening to the story of Lori Lee Farmer, Doris Denise Milner, and Michelle Heather Gousset. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story. <laughs>